Good morning, everyone. Some of you are awake. Good morning, everyone. It's uh, good to be here with you this morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, please open them up to the book of Jonah. We're going to be continuing our journey through that book, Jonah chapter 1, verses 17, all the way to the end of chapter 2. It's our text this morning. So Jonah 1, chapter, Jonah 1 verse 17, uh, to chapter 2, verse 10. If you don't have your Bibles with you this morning, it will be on the screen uh, behind me. And if you can give me feedback on whether or not you can read that or not, that would be helpful. So after the service, you can just chat to me and I can see if I can improve that for the weeks to come. Uh, Jonah chapter 1 verse 17 says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, and this is his prayer, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Shoal I cried, and you heard my voice. For you uh, cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surround me. All your waves and your billows pass over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the root of the mountain, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought me up my life from the pits, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayers came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out on the dry land. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word this morning. We thank you that your word is living and active. It is true for us today. We thank you that it holds authority over our lives, but yet it guides us into the good life that you've called us to live. And so, Lord, we pray that this morning you would give us ears to hear, but also hearts that are willing to do. We don't want to just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word, because we know, as I read this week in, in the Gospel of Luke, how blessed is the person who not only hears, but does your word. And so, Lord, we want to be a people who respond by this wonderful grace of your word being preached. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in verse 17 of the text that we read this morning in chapter 1, we see that God appointed a giant fish to come and swallow Jonah up. And this word appoint is used a number of times throughout the book of Jonah. We will see it used another two times in verses, uh, chapter 4. We will see that God will appoint a, um, a plant to grow and he will appoint a plant to die the very next day. And in each time, God uses these certain occasions to teach Jonah a certain lesson that he desperately needs to learn. And may I say to us this morning that God uses certain seasons in our lives, certain situations and occasions to teach us lessons that we desperately need to learn as well. And in hindsight, if we have to look over our lives, which is a great exercise for us to do, when we look over our lives, we will be able to see that even the most difficult situations were seasons that God used to teach us. In actual fact, you'll probably find that it wasn't on the mountain tops that you learned your most valuable lessons, but rather in the valley, valley lows that you were growing the most, changed the most, your character was uh, sturdied and, and uh, fortified in those moments. Tim Keller will call these seasons, seasons of severe mercies. 
where God will take the most difficult, even excruciating situations, and that he will use them to heal more good in our lives than we could have ever foreseen. And Scripture gives us many, many different pictures of this kind of teaching. We see in the, uh, in the epistle of uh, Peter, 1, uh, 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7, it says this, In all this you greatly rejoice, that though now for a little while you may have had uh, to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even through refined fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So Peter says that we go through a variety of circumstances, and we are refined like gold in fire. As gold is melted, what happens is the impurity that in the gold will rise to the top, and the person can scrape off the impurities. In a similar way, God allows a variety of difficult circumstances to come into our lives so that the impurity might be scraped off, so that when our great glorious Jesus is revealed, it might result in honor, praise, and worship. That there is this real sense that we are being made more refined through difficult situations. We see another example, another imagery in John 15 verses 1 and 2. Jesus says that he is the vine and we are the branches and that we are grafted into him and we get our nutrients from him. But he says that the Father is the great gardener. The gardener who comes along and he will prune us back. We see this in in verse 2. He says, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will even uh, be more fruitful. So we who are Christians, who are bearing fruit for the glory of Christ, God brings along different seasons to prune us back, to cut us. And that is painful. It's not a, a fun moment to go through pruning. But the benefit of it is that we will be more fruitful for the glory of Christ. Another example is found in Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 1 to 6. We won't read the whole thing, but what we will see is that God tells Jeremiah to go down to the potter's house and to observe the potter. And the potter makes this wonderful pot, but the whole time he's manipulating the clay. He is pushing out the hard pieces so that it might become more malleable in his hands. And the potter will shape the pot the way he wants to. And if it doesn't look the way he wants, he starts all over again. And once the pot reaches the shape he wants, what the potter would then do is he would take it to the oven and he would put it under extreme heat to harden it so that it might be useful and not not break easily. And in verse 6 of Jeremiah 18, God says, Like clay in in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, Israel. So are you in my hand, East Coast. That he takes you and he shapes you the way he wants to. And the last imagery that I want us to remind us of is found in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 7 to 11. We see there in that text that the writer of Hebrews argues that we are God's children, that he is our father. And like a father does, he goes and he disciplines his children. Why does he discipline him? Because he loves them. He loves his children. He wants them to become the men and women that they should be. And so he has to discipline them. And in fact, the writer of Hebrews will argue, you receiving discipline shows that you are legitimate children, that you are actually God's children. Because I don't know if you've tried to discipline other people's children. It's quite a difficult and awkward thing to do, isn't it? But God disciplines his own children And he disciplines them because he wants the best for them. So in verses 10 and 11 of Hebrews chapter 12, we see the writer say, He disciplines us for our goods, 
that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it heals the peaceful fruits of righteousness to those who are being trained by it. So God trains us through discipline. And those things, as the writer of Hebrews says, isn't pleasant at the time. It's rather painful. But rather, the outcome is what God is looking at, not the simple moment. He wants to see us grow in these things. And the Bible is full of examples of men and women who have gone through the pruning, the refining, the discipline, and the shaping. And as a result, through that, have become great, powerful men and women who are leaders in Scripture. We see a wonderful example of this is found in Jacob, who had to be prepared to run away from his family then be mistreated by the hand of his father-in-law. And then he had this real threat, at least he thought so, this real threat of Esau coming to kill him. And it's only through these years of pruning and these years of discipline and shaping is he ready to see the face of God in chapter 32. And many other examples are found in that of Abraham, Joseph, David, Elijah, Peter, just to name a few, who became powerful leaders for the kingdom of God through suffering and failure. And even as we sit in, this, in our room this, this morning, we realize that we could give stories and testimonies of our own lives being shaped and molded through a variety of difficult situations. I don't have time this morning, but I would love to have a cup of coffee, share with you some of the difficult things that I have gone through in my short life, but yet God has used for my goods. And at the time, they might not have seemed right. But at the end, as you look back in hindsight, you go, God, what the enemy meant for evil, what others meant for evil, you and your good and gracious hand have used for goods. You see, what, we, what Jonah is trying to teach us and what we're trying to learn in this section is that it's only when you're at the very bottom, when everything falls apart, when the last of your schemes and strategies and resources are broken and exhausted, that you finally learn how to be open to being completely dependent upon Jesus. It is often said, and I sometimes a bit too flippantly, but it is often said, you never realize that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. You never realize that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Jesus put it like this in one of the Gospels. He says, you must lose your life first in order to find it. J.C. Rao says it like this. He says, by trial, he weans us from the world, draws them to Christ, drives them to the Bible and prayer, shows them their own heart and makes them humble. This is the process by which he purges them and makes them humble. There was a fatal flaw in Jonah's character, and he couldn't recognize it in the, in the mountaintop experiences. He couldn't recognize it in the normal life that he was experiencing, but it was through the difficult moments and trials that this flaw was starting to be exposed and that he would be able to see it and understand it. If Jonah was to ascend, both in water and in faith, Jonah first had to be brought down to the valley lows. The up was first to go down in order for him to reach his destination. The, usual, the, the most usual place we learn the greatest secrets about God's grace is at the bottom right at the bottom. But I want to point out to you this morning that it's not just simply being at the bottom that transforms us into the people God desires us to be. Because I know, at least in my experience, there have certainly been many occasions when I have reached the bottom but not learned anything. That in my stubbornness and in my uh, 
my desperation and in, in, in my plight and woe is me kind of attitudes. I didn't learn anything. But I want to show you that while Jonah had reached rock bottom, what really transformed him wasn't being at the bottom of the ocean or inside the fish, but what really transformed him was him clinging to God. It was this action that moved him to depend on God for God's grace within his life. It was him realizing that he has no other way other than God, and therefore he clung to him. Friends, going through the bottom is a vital step of the journey, but it is not the last step. The next step that you need to take when you've been dragged down to the bottom of everything is to cling upon Jesus, to hold on to him, to make sure that it is on him that we find the grace that we need. And Jonah sees that. In the climax of his prayer, he uses this word in verse 8. He says this word, chesed, which is a Hebrew word for steadfast love or, or grace, the covenant love. And Jonah realizes that he needs the grace of God. Now, I think we can all admit this morning that being inside of a fish isn't exactly the best place you want to be. If you go for a swim this afternoon after church, you head off to the ocean, you don't, on top of your list of things you don't want to happen is right up there is being swallowed by a giant fish. But Jonah is in such a precarious situation that actually being inside the fish is God's grace. Because he was sinking and drowning. In the text, in the Hebrew text, there's this imagery of the water being right at the entrance of his throat before the fish comes and gets him. It's the last dying moments that he is saved. And so for Jonah, this is the first time that he gets to realize God has been gracious to him. The stubborn heart has to see that even though he's inside a fish, this is God's grace to him. The severe mercy is God's grace to him. But not only has God been gracious to him, he also realizes that God still needs to be gracious to him because he can't get himself out this fish. You don't want to stay there. That's not going to be his home. He needs to get out. And so we see Jonah starts to depend on God. Lord, you need to get me out. I need you. You need to be continuously be gracious to me so I might get onto dry land. And he appeals to grace. And only when he appeals to grace does the fish let him out. It's only then that he is spat out onto the shore. Now, friends, in order for us to be transformed, we need to appeal to grace. We need to understand grace. So what is grace? Grace, what is it? Well, maybe the theologians in the room, when I asked that question, immediately said, unmerited favor. And you would be right. Grace is unmerited favor without a shadow of a doubt. But one of the major messages of the book of Jonah is to teach us that even a prophet, even a preacher can be in dark when it comes to grace. Could Jonah define grace? 100%. But the realities of his life, the, the fears and, uh, his fears and prejudices all stem from his blindness to the realities of grace. In chapter 1, God tells Jonah to head off to the Ninevites to go and preach the good news, essentially. Tell them to repent and God will have mercy on them or he will judge them. And Jonah cannot fathom the extremity of God's grace towards such a wicked nation. He doesn't get it. And so he flees in the opposite direction. In chapter 2, which we're in, Jonah is wrestling with the mysteries of grace, being stuck in a fish, seeing that as grace, but also starting to realize he still needs God's grace. And so he is wrestling with grace. Only when 
Jonah grasps grace, can Jonah become the fearless preacher that God wants him to be? Until then, he's not transformed. Until then, God is not going to use him the way he needs to be used. And one of the primary purposes of Jonah is to, the primary purpose of the book of Jonah is to get us to understand God's grace. And friends, may I say to you, if Jonah can misunderstand grace, so can we. And may I also warn us that the, the, the nature of our hearts are such that once upon a time you might have been able to understand grace, but over time grace leaks. The wickedness of our hearts become that we start to be dependent on ourselves again. The pride rises up and we think, actually, I deserve this, rather than resting on the grace of God. So what is grace? Well, there are three aspects to grace in Jonah's prayers that are essential for us to be able to understand in order for there to be the transforming work of God within our lives so that we might become the men and women he desires us to be. And the first, the first one is this, that we are morally depraved. We see this throughout Scripture. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says that our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. Psalm 58 verse 3 says we go astray from birth, speak in lies. Ephesians 2 verse 5 says that we are born, as a result of being born this way, we are dead in our trespasses. John 3 verse 19 says that we are held captive by, the things we, uh, the, the, by, captive by our love for sin and darkness. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14 says that we are unable to understand God's ways, and in actual fact, we are willfully, willingly running towards sin rather than toward God's. And so the, the overall analysis of Scripture is found in Romans 3 verse 23, that famous verse that says, all have fallen short of the glory of God. And the result of our falling short before God's glory is that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. That is Romans 6 verse 23. And so the, one of the fundamental things that we need to realize if we are to understand grace is, church, you deserve nothing from Jesus. You deserve nothing from God. The only thing we deserve is God's wrath, is his punishment. Everything else you have is God's grace toward you. The air that you're about to breathe in your next breath. The drink that you have drunk this morning, the coffee that you had, the warm bed that you woke up in, the roof of your head, the intellect that you have, the health in your body is all because God is being gracious to you. It's what we call as theologians common grace. He gives it not only to the believers, but he also gives it to all people, everyone, even the bad. It rains on the good, and it rains on the bad. The sun shines on the good, it shines on the bad. That is common grace. God is gracious to us, but you do not deserve it. You do not deserve it. And I don't think our culture really helps us in this way. We live in a society where the main problem we are taught is a lack of self-esteem. We have too much shame and self-discrimination. And on top of that, we, we live in a postmodern society that tells us, and we heard a little bit about it this morning, is that it tells us that your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. And the outworkings of such a postmodern thinking ultimately leads to I can live the way I want to live because it doesn't really matter. It might be wrong for you to say that, but it's not wrong for me. And so morality really loses its standard because anyone can do what they want because it seems right to them. There is no higher moral standard, but Scripture doesn't teach us that. In actual fact, what we see is Scripture tells us that the very standard is God himself and it has been revealed to us through Scripture. 
Jesus says in John 17, 17, that he says, he's praying in his high priestly prayer. He says, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. And I want you to notice there that he doesn't use the word, the adjective true. He uses the noun truth. In other words, scripture isn't just true amongst all other standard of truth, but rather it is the very standard which all other truth has to fall in line with. Otherwise, it's not true. And what we see from Scripture is it tells us that we have fallen drastically short, that every single one of us in this room have sin in our hearts. And friends, if you do not get that, if you do not realize that, there's going to be a real sense in you that you do not understand grace. Because you won't even be able to understand the end of Romans 6, verses 23, where it says that the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. It's a gift. You haven't earned it. It's not what you have done. You haven't been able to get this through your own moral actions or because you're a good moral citizen or you're not as bad as your neighbor next door. No, it is a gift that is given to you that is free. You have not paid for it. My, my salary, your salaries that you have earned aren't gifts. You have worked hard. You deserve it for the effort that you have put in. But rather, you have not earned anything of God's grace. Eternal life is given to you as a gift, not because of what you have achieved, not because of what you have done. And Jonah, we see this with Jonah. Jonah gets it. In verse 3, he says, you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. He gets that there's divine justice, and he understands that he deserves it. The second aspect of grace that we need to understand is that we are spiritually incompetent. In other words, not only do we need to admit that we are sinful, but we also need to admit that you and I can't change that. There is nothing that you and I can do to make ourselves right before God. And I don't think us African hearts really help with this kind of thinking. We are a people who are hardened. We are a people who go through adversity. And we are people who overcome, right? We complain, yes, we like to complain, but we also make a plan. We, we have to make a pro- there's a problem, we have to overcome it. And I think in some ways it has seeped into our idea of morality and with God is that we realize and we can admit, no, I know I'm not right. I know there's something wrong within me. But it lends to a thinking that goes, no, I can sort myself out. I can overcome this. I've overcome in many other areas. I I make plans in other areas, and we just have to do it. And so I'm going to put myself and position myself through my own actions before God in such a way that he has to say yes. He can't say no. He has to say yes to me here. But friends, if that is our understanding, again, we have misgrace. In Jonah's day, this kind of thinking was rife. Every religion had a very moral aspect to it that you had to do in order to receive. And you had to set yourself up in such a position in order to get. But in verse 6, we see Jonah outright rejects this thinking. As he's sinking to the bottom of the ocean, as he says to the foundations of the mountain, in verse 6 he says, the gates of earth are shut behind me forever. The idea of it, there's this closed gate and I cannot get anywhere now. There is no way for me to rattle this gate or to shake it open. I do not have the key to this gate. And friends, we need to realize that we are barred from God. There is this gate before us that we cannot open. No matter how hard we try, we cannot get there but rather God himself has to open the gate for us. That's the gate. And, and so he realizes that 
he cannot get to God. Until you admit that, until you admit there is nothing you can do to make God love you, there is nothing you can do to make God give you salvation, you will not have an understanding of grace that resonates in your hearts. You will be lacking there. And the last uh, way grace, the thing about grace that we see in this text is that grace is costly. Grace is costly. It is, if we are to understand God's grace in a way that transforms us, it is how costly, we need to understand how costly the salvation is that God provides. And we don't necessarily see that easily in Jonah's prayer. So I want you to follow me here. If you've been zoning in and out, this is not the time to zone out. Zone in. We don't see it easily here, but what we see here is Jonah two times in his prayer, he doesn't just look toward heaven, but he says, I look toward your holy temple. I look toward your holy temple. See in verses 4 and 7, why? Because Jonah knew that if he was going to have the ear of God, he needed to appeal to the mercy seat of God. What is the mercy seat? The mercy seat was a slab of gold on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And inside the Ark of the Covenant was kept the Ten Commandments. And on the Day of Atonement, what would happen is a priest would come and he would sprinkle the blood of the atoning sacrifice upon this mercy seat. It's this beautiful picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because what we have here is we have this temple where the holy God resided, where he stayed, where he dwelt, and you had there as well, perfectly representing his perfect holiness and righteousness, the Ten Commandments. So how then could Jonah appeal to this God? Because this, these Ten Commandments, the law condemned him, right? How could he appeal that God would hear him? Well, it's this. It would have condemned him except for the blood of the atoning sacrifice upon the mercy seats. Over the Ten Commandments that was shielding him from condemnation. Does that make sense? I see some heads nodding. I'm going to take it. It's this wonderful thing of this blood covering him from the condemnation of the law. And friends, it is a, a wonderful picture that our forgiveness is only secured when it comes at the cost of the death of another. And it represents the gospel so well for us. It reminds us that we are, uh, that we are sinful wickedly sinful. It reminds us that we cannot help ourselves, but rather that grace comes at the cost of another. And the Israelites and Jonah didn't quite get it, but centuries later, what we see is that it's not, this atoning work is not affected by the blood of bulls and goats and lambs, but rather it was permanently affected and applied by the blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ's. And so what we get to realize is that our grace, that we get to know God and enjoy Him and delight in Him and, and be able to have His ear and speak to Him, comes at the radical cost of the blood of Jesus Christ. And until you get that, until you realize that while grace is free, it is free to you, it, is, it costs you nothing, but it costs God His very own Son. Until you get that, you won't have a grace that radically transforms you in your hearts. So what is the grace that transforms? Because if we don't get this grace, we will be a shadow of the men and women that God wants us to be. So what is this grace? How does, it, how does this grace transform us? Well, the first thing is that it makes us very bold. 
if you are to understand that you are freely given God, not because of what you've done and who you are, but because of his great love towards you, it is electrifying. Can you, can you think back to the day you came to know Jesus? That joy, that, that excitement, this realization that you are, you are saved it can give you a real zeal. And we see this happen with the great reformer, Martin Luther. He, when he finally understood it, he went from this anxious, guilt-ridden seminary professor to suddenly a lion who was ready to take on the whole world. And he writes this, he says, Faith is a living, bold trust in God's grace, so certain of God's favor that it would risk a, thousand, a death a thousand times in it. Such confidence and knowledge of God's grace makes you happy, joyful, and bold in your relationship with God and other creatures. And so what it does is it creates in us a zeal to live obedient lives for the glory of Jesus. If you don't understand that God's grace was costly, for example, you won't live obedient lives for the glory of Christ. Because what ends up happening is we get a cheap grace picture. And what I mean by cheap grace is that there are sins in our lives, there's things in our lives that we have that we don't necessarily want to get rid of, right? I'll put my hands up. There are, there are things that are difficult to let go of. There are things that are hard to uh, depart from because we enjoy sin. And the call of Christ is to lay those things down and to follow him. But if you don't realize that the, the salvation that you have been given, this relationship that you have with God, this grace is costly, what ends up happening is you go, I'm not going to give it up anyway because God will forgive me. I'm not going to give up my sin because it's too difficult and it's too costly for me to do so. But God's in the business of forgiving, isn't he? And so therefore, he would just forgive me anyway. And so what happens is we live a life of a lack of obedience rather than obedience because you have a cheap understanding of grace. But when you realize that God has given us his son, that it cost Christ dwelling in, in heaven, it cost him his life on earth and came in excruciating suffering to him. When you realize it cost him that much, then the things that it will cost you fail to compare. And you start to take seriously the demands and calls on Christ, Christ on your life to come and live for him. And, but what it does give you is not a reluctance, oh, I must do this, but rather a zeal to go after it. Because knowing that if this good God who would give you his life has called you to live like this, surely it only benefits you more. That true life is found in this. So it's, yes, I will cast these things off because this will suck the life out of me, but God's ways gives me life. And so there's a zeal behind living for him, even if it's costly. It also removes the great burden that comes with trying to do it all ourselves. It removes the burdens. I have, I have my own experience have tried in my early years of being a Christian and misunderstanding many things, when I had sinned and messed up intentionally, then trying my very best in my own efforts to make right with God, trying to prove to him that I am not the same person I was 10 minutes ago, trying to show him, feeling, feeling desperate that I can't approach him because of my sin, and so in many ways trying to first make myself better so that he could see I'm worthy to come before him. And friends, grace strips that kind of thinking away. If we are reminded that we have nothing valuable in us, if we are reminded that there is nothing that we have done to earn this grace, 
then we can, even in our sinfulness, come freely before the throne of God and throw ourselves at his feet, knowing that he will accept us in. Because it's never been about what you have done. It's always been about what he has done. And you being in Christ, we spoke about this a couple of weeks ago, you being in Christ means that you have his righteousness upon you and you can approach him boldly. And it is so freeing. Are you burdened by your unworthiness today? Friends, you'll never be worthy in yourself. You're only worthy by the righteousness of Christ. We sang it this morning. My confidence is in the righteousness of the blood of Jesus and the confidence in Jesus' blood. That's it. Nothing else. Nothing else. And it frees us. It's the most freeing thing. It abolishes guilt forever. This idea of living in the shame of the things that we have done in the past. Sometimes the past sins can carry so much guilt within us and, and the enemy tends to remind us of those moments regularly to make you feel guilty and unworthy to, to approach him. But what grace does is it reminds us that no matter how sinful you are, even if you were a thousand times more sinful than you actually are right now, I want to remind you, friends, that his grace and mercy are sufficient to overcome. It's far greater than anything you have ever done. There's these two hymns that I love. There's, there's this one hymn, this line that says, My sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. There's this another line in another hymn that says, Well might the accuser all of sins that I have done. I've seen them all and a thousand more. Jehovah knoweth none. It's the beauty of his grace. That we can live free from the guilt of the past and live in who we are in Christ charging after what he has for us. And lastly, what it does is it also abolishes a fear of failure. I think this was part of Jonah's problem, is this fear of going off and not, it not working out. You see, so many of our deepest longings to succeed are really just ways uh, to be ourselves what Christ should be for us. It's that if I would do this for God, then I would be accepted. If I would be this kind of person in business, then I've achieved, and then I would be accepted. If I could be like this as a grandparent or a parent, then I will be accepted. And we place our value in trying to achieve things, thinking through our efforts of achieving, then God will accept us, or others will accept us. But really what grace comes and does is in regardless of how you achieve or what you do, you are accepted because of Christ's grace towards you, not because of what you've done. And so it gives us a boldness to go and charge the heel for Christ. Because whether we fail or not, it doesn't matter. Whether we take Glen Eden and, and the East Coast for Christ or not, it doesn't matter. Because we are accepted by God and we are loved for him. So he calls us to do it, so we will do it. But if we fail, so what? We try again. My, my, my acceptance is not based on how my performance. My acceptance is based on Christ's performance, and he is perfect. Oh, man, that is freeing. It is so freeing. And when we get these things, it transforms us radically. Now, I realize as I come to my fourth point this morning that transformation is a slow process. As we look over this list of boldness and no, no longer burdened and guilt-free and a fear of failure to that it charges the hill, is that I start to realize, actually, maybe there's a lot of grace that I still need to apply to my heart, isn't there? And maybe this morning you're starting to realize, actually, I don't get grace as much as I should. And I want to encourage you this morning that 
this is a process of applying for the rest of your life. You have, this takes a lifelong journey. Sanctification is not a silver bullet. I wish it was. It would be so great, but it's not. But rather, it is a slow trudging of becoming more like Jesus. We see this in 2 Corinthians 3.18. It says, And we with all unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory and being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And one of the translations puts it, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. It's like this one tedious step and another with the legs that don't seem to work. And it's slow and it's painful. But it's, we get there by the Spirit's help. We get there by the Spirit's help. And so don't feel discouraged this morning that you're not where you need to be. Depend on the Holy Spirit. Ask Him to sanctify you. Ask Him to make you more like Christ. It's one of His primary works in our lives is to mold us into the image of Jesus. Ask Him for Him to do that. And as one degree of glory, you will get more and more like Jesus. And one day when we reach eternity, when we get to, uh, the, to be with God in heaven, we will be glorified and then we will be perfect. But till then we fight. But here I want to end off with some real sweet moments of grace for us. And my last point is this. His grace and mercy are new every moment. His grace and mercy are new every moment. I know scripture says every morning, but I just want to, I want to add to that today of saying every moment. Because there is this wonderful passage in Hebrews 7 verse 25. I think I might have mentioned before. It says this, talking about Jesus as our high priest. It says, therefore he is able to uh, save completely those who come to God through him since he always lives to intercede for us. And so here the imagery is of the high priest who would come to the mercy seat and he would sprinkle the atoning sacrifice's blood upon the uh, mercy seat as he interceded between God and the wicked Israel. He would come and pay for their sins. And so here we are told that Jesus is our high priest who is always interceding for us. In other words, Jesus at every moment is standing at the altar or at the mercy seat and he is applying his sacrifice, his atoning work upon the cross in every moment of our lives. It's this beautiful idea of knowing that Christ atoned for my sin is being atoned for now. The application of it is happening now. And now, and now, and in 10 minutes' time, and in an hour's time, and later when you're sleeping, and tomorrow when you're working, and when you're having a cup of tea with your friends, and when you're going for your cycle, and when you're doing your hobby, at every single moment, whether you know it or not, the atoning work of Christ is being applied to you. And you are free, not because of your work, not because of what you've done, but because the high priest who always intercedes for us, Jesus, is applying his sacrifice to you in every moment. It's the most liberating thing. And what it calls us to do is to run after Christ every single second of the day. To, to have for us, available to us through this grace, a relationship with this glorious God is wonderful. What a shame it would be that we would neglect that. Go after it. Do you hunger for him? Hunger more. Do you know him? Know him more. Do you believe in him? Believe in him more. 
Do you read your Bible? Enjoy it. Love Him. Enjoy it. Let that be sweet moments of seeking Christ, not because of what you have done, not to try and earn this relationship, but because it's already been given to you freely by grace. Right at the end, Jonah says, salvation belongs to the Lord. It's not partly you and partly Him. It's all Him. If you are sitting here this morning going, I wish I was more worthier, you still don't understand because He is your worthiness. If you are sitting here this morning saying, I want him in my life, but I just don't see him working. Again, my friend, you've missed grace because the fact that you want him at all is his grace upon your life already. He's working in you already. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this incredible grace. We want to acknowledge, Lord, this morning that we are a people who are not worthy of you. We do not have anything intrinsically valuable in us that makes you love us, but yet somehow, in your mercy and your grace, you have loved us with the fullness of love. And Lord, I pray for us as a church that we would be able to put aside the the legalistic attitudes in our hearts that make you do it for us, but rather just be able to be a people who, like Martha, uh, like Mary, is able to come and sit at your feet and receive. That we would choose the good portion of choosing Jesus, delighting in the wonderful grace that you have for us. Make us bold, we pray. Help us to be a people who are incredibly obedient to you, charging the hill, not because it earns us favor with you, but because we've already found favor in you. Help us to be a people who are uh, freed from the fear of failure and guilt and burden. Let us enjoy all of Christ, we pray. May grace seep deeply into our hearts each and every single day. May we approach you knowing that our high priest is always interceding for us and that you love us. We thank you, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.